the What Would It Take podcast is co-produced by Anabaptist World and me, Ben Tapper. The views expressed here are my own and do not necessarily represent the official positions of Anabaptist World. To learn more, visit anabaptistworld.org. Hey y'all, welcome back to the What Would It Take podcast. Before we jump into this week's episode, I've got a question. I'm currently trying to figure out what direction I want to move with this podcast next year, and frankly, I could use your help. If you could, take a few minutes and complete the survey that's in the show notes. And let me be clear on this. This isn't a survey just for the sake of having a survey. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that, I guess, but that's not really my style. I want to know what you think, and your responses will help me shape the sound and feel of this podcast next year. Honestly, it might even help me determine if I continue making this podcast or if I decide to pivot to another idea. So again, I really need and want your feedback. So please take a few minutes and check out the survey that is linked in the show notes. I'd love to hear from you and I really appreciate you and your support. And as always, take a second to leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. And if you have ideas of topics that you want me to cover or things you really want me to talk about, send me an email at benjaminjtapper at gmail.com. That's benjaminjtapper at gmail.com. All right, enough with the announcements. Let's jump into the show. Today, we're going to discuss a topic that I've honestly been avoiding, the war in Ukraine. Y'all, I have been avoiding this topic because every major news outlet has been covering it. I don't necessarily feel like I've got a particularly hot take or I don't know, a fresh insight to add. And I'm not an expert in geopolitical politics. I'm certainly not an expert on the history of Europe or Russia. Having said that, I also know that there are plenty of other podcasts that you can go to to find in-depth coverage or analysis. A few that I enjoy are NPR's Up First and Vox's Today Explained, but there are also many others. However, as I've watched this crisis unfold, there are a few observations that I think are worth lending my voice to. So that's what this episode is. It's Ben's random thoughts and observations, not necessarily about the crisis itself, but about things on the periphery of the crisis. So today's episode might sound more like what you get if we sat down for coffee and you just asked me, Ben, what do you think about Ukraine? I say all that to say, (laughs) y'all, buckle up. Today we're asking, what would it take to understand our perspective on the crisis in Ukraine? Listen in to find out. Let's start with some basic background information so that we're all on the same page. Ukraine is a country in Eastern Europe, bordered by Poland, Hungary, Belarus, Moldova, Romania, Slovakia, and obviously Russia. It's also across the sea from Turkey. And as I'm sure you know, Russia invaded Ukraine on February 24th, 2022. However, this invasion is really just an extension of Russia's 2014 annexation of Crimea, which is a region in eastern Ukraine. The two nations have a rich and admittedly complex history. Both were part of the former Soviet Union, or USSR, and after the dissolution of the Soviet Union, Ukraine voluntarily abandoned its nuclear capabilities and began forging a much closer relationship with the West, which includes countries like the United States, Germany, the United Kingdom, and France, among many others. Now, this relationship 
included a desire for Ukraine to join the European Union and NATO. And this proximity with the West is likely what has triggered Russia's increased aggression over the past few years. As I mentioned, Russia invaded Ukraine and forcibly took control of Crimea in 2014. And at the same time, Russian-backed separatists have been fighting the Ukrainian military in the Donbas region. Needless to say, tensions have been high for years. Russia launched its current invasion under the guise of protecting Russian people in eastern Ukraine and denazifying the country, which, honestly, you guys, is, is just laughable. Because truly, Russia is probably just trying to prevent the expansion of NATO, which it views as a threat to its political and economic interests. And since this war began in February, we've heard reports of terrible atrocities. Mass graves have been uncovered. The entire port city of Mariupol has been besieged for months, which has led to a humanitarian crisis. Women and children have been injured or killed during strikes on residential areas. It's been devastating to witness, even from a distance. And to those who have connections in Ukraine, I am truly sorry. Your pain and your suffering did not have to happen. And I hope there's an end to this nightmare soon. I often spend moments imagining what life is like for the young people in Ukraine right now. As a trauma survivor and endurer myself, I wonder about the long-term impact of living in a war zone. I, I think we've often become acutely aware of the visible toll of war, bodies mangled and damaged, life lost, buildings and infrastructure destroyed, but, but I wonder about the invisible toll because I don't think it's as easily identified. I mean, for those who are young right now, if this war does end, how will their development have been impacted? In, in what ways will their future relationships suffer? How widespread will PTSD or complex PTSD become in that area? And what hopes or dreams have to be abandoned in order for them to survive? I wonder what talent the world is going to lose out on because of this conflict. See, trauma has a way of lingering and digging its tentacles into every facet of your life in ways that you aren't even aware of until it's too late. And I just wonder, what will all this mean in five to ten years for those that are living through it? I might never really know the answer, but my heart goes out to the people that are enduring this crisis. What I do know is that they will continue to need support long after missiles stop raining from the sky. And I hope they receive it. Outside of the uselessness of the bloodshed that we're seeing, I've also been reflecting on the ways the war was initially covered. As I listened to the reports in late February and early March, I heard several prominent reporters openly note their horror and surprise that we were witnessing such a tragedy in a, quote, civilized country. I'll be honest, when I heard that word civilized being used, I had to do a double take. And if that language doesn't seem problematic to you, it, it really should be. Because the myth of civilized versus uncivilized people is one that is rooted in the historic formation of white supremacy and colonization. Western European countries like the UK, France, and Germany were viewed as superior, civilized, and in good standing with God. Whereas people in places like Western Africa were viewed as uncivilized and in need of, quote, saving. Now, this was nothing more than a violent, vile, 
an evil myth designed to allow and excuse away the pillaging, plundering, and utter destruction of peoples, countries, and places. That's all it was. This myth fueled by um, the rise of a racial hierarchy allowed dominant powers at the time, dominant military and economic powers, to go to nations, tribes, and people groups within the continent of Africa and commit terrible atrocities like what we witnessed in Congo. And if you're not familiar with the history of Congo, uh, check out the book King Leopold's Ghost. I think there's also a movie about it, but it, it, it's horrific and the effects continue to be felt today. But, but even beyond Congo, I mean, quite literally, the reason that the country borders are drawn the way they are throughout Africa are because of colonization. It's because a group of old white European men got in a room one day and literally just carved the country up to their liking and debated over who would get which territory. Then they sent their missionaries and their military leaders over there to civilize, save, really to exploit the people in the region, kill them if necessary, and institute systems of government and economic systems that benefited those European countries. That is what this myth of civilization has gotten us. Racist violence that has led to decades, if not centuries, of problems for the original inhabitants of those lands. Ooh, I'm not going to lie, that last tangent wasn't even in my script. I just, <laughs> that word civilized just takes me places and I can't help it. So again, this is what you're getting from me today. But the language we've used to differentiate between civilized and uncivilized has shifted over the years. And now we more commonly refer to places as either first or third world, or in some cases, developed or underdeveloped. The inference is that some countries are superior and more advanced, while others are inferior. Now, I hear what you're thinking. Ben, isn't it just objectively true that some places are developed and others aren't? I mean, maybe. Maybe if we look at healthcare systems, infrastructure, education systems, etc., we could find an objective way to measure and then rank countries, sure. But when those terms are created, and when these terms are used today, they aren't rooted in any objective evaluation of metrics. They're rooted in bias and the presumed superiority of whiteness and Western systems and ways of being. With that in mind, you can see why I was so surprised, frankly, to hear a reporter use the term civilized during live coverage. It felt so blatant, like we're not even trying to hide our bias. And I'm not making a character judgment on the reporter. N not at all. Instead, I'm actually just pointing us to an incessant and pervasive ideology that is held in white Western nations. And as I alluded to, the problems don't start and stop with ideology. Countries we now refer to as developed or civilized have been robbing underdeveloped countries of their resources for a long time. Even after colonial rule ended, former colonial powers have maintained strong political and in some cases even military ties with their former colonies. Uh, an example might be France and Algeria or the UK and Nigeria. And lest you think the US is absolved of any guilt here because it didn't have colonies, there are a few places that would beg to differ. And the foremost example in my mind is the Philippines. If you are not familiar with the history of the relationship between the United States and Philippines, 
do a quick Google search and see what you find. It's frankly quite tragic and I'm ashamed that it's a part of our history as a nation. Honestly though, we don't even have to go all the way to the Philippines to talk about US colonial influence. I mean, we could discuss a place like Puerto Rico and unpack the complex history between the United States and that island as well. My point is, Western powers are culpable when we talk about colonial rule and its legacy. And one such legacy is the lingering impact of broad economic interests of colonial powers. In the U.S., businesses like Coca-Cola have set up branches and bases in foreign countries. And they've also hired mercenaries, small militias, and other armed organizations and groups to assassinate political leaders such as union organizers that are fighting for better working conditions or even freedom from corrupt U.S. influence. Yeah, you heard me right. One way or another, Western powers have had their thumb on non-Western countries for a long time. These countries, if they are underdeveloped at all, it's in large part due to the influence and interference of Western military, religious, and commercial powers. Okay, but what does this have to do with Ukraine? Right, again, I went on another tangent. Man, this really works me up, but let me try to focus here. People were so shocked because this war and the devastation that it was wreaking were happening in a white European country, a country they viewed as developed, a country they viewed as civilized. We were shocked because we're used to seeing violence perpetuated by the self-interest of the West in places like Iraq, Afghanistan, Venezuela, or even the Philippines. But it seemed weird to see the same violence affecting white faces and families. It felt strange to see white refugees fleeing their homes. It undid the dominant racialized narratives that many of us hold, and in some ways, it flipped our world order or our perceived world order upside down. And that's what we're reacting to. That's what that reporter was reacting to when they were covering the story and they were marveling at the fact that they were seeing this violence in a civilized nation. What I'm saying is the images on our screens were and continue to challenge our fundamental belief that this isn't supposed to happen here because wars don't happen in developed countries. They happen in the places that developed countries seek to dominate and exploit. And it's not just the coverage that struck me. And it's not just the coverage that struck me. It's also the overwhelming support for Ukrainian refugees. Because we've seen other refugees fleeing violence, and they haven't gotten the same treatment. Afghan refugees, Syrian refugees, North African refugees, and Central and South American refugees have not been welcomed with the same grace and honor that Ukrainian refugees have. Those refugees, the black and brown refugees, are labeled as terrorists, violent criminals, and lawless hordes, while Ukrainian refugees are largely heralded as victims of a foreign aggressor. Again, why? I mean, we know the answer. It goes back to the myth of civilized versus uncivilized people, which is rooted in the supremacy and superiority of whiteness, and it's rooted in Western dominance. Inherent in this myth is the idea that white folks, developed countries, Western nations, don't deserve violence. They're too much like us. Their neighborhoods look like ours. Their systems of government feel kind of familiar. In the case of Ukraine, some of you listening can even trace your ancestral roots back to that country, maybe even to Kiev itself. So there's a literal connection 
And seeing violence there triggers an empathy that might not be triggered when we see Afghans or Syrians fleeing. And don't get me wrong, I remember the outcry when the war in Syria was at its apex. I recall the public sympathy that was garnered. I recall um, how people reacted when we learned of the atrocities that were taking place there. Or even more recently, when we learned of the atrocities that were taking place in Ethiopia last year. And by the way, those are still happening. But were those stories covered in the same way that the story in Ukraine is being covered? Were private citizens opening their homes and Western governments opening their borders to refugees with the same sense of eagerness and fervor? I don't think so. In some select cases, maybe, but by and large, nah, it wasn't happening like that. So what I'm saying is the response to Ukrainian refugees and the way the war has been covered I think are rooted in Western dominance and the superiority of whiteness. I don't see any other way around it. And my hope in naming this is that we will continue to support the people in Ukraine, that we'll continue to donate money, we'll continue to put pressure on our leaders to do what is right and make sure that we're doing all we can to protect them. And that we will look at ourselves, that we'll look in the mirror and ask ourselves why we are processing this conflict, this war, this tragedy, differently than we process others, that will take an honest reflection on where our own bias and ideas of superiority are coming into play and where they've come into play in the past, and will wonder how we decide who is and isn't worthy of our attention, who is and isn't civilized, what places are or aren't developed. I think we've got to ask some of these hard questions and then see what changes or what could change within us. This may seem small, but sometimes doing the work of reorienting our worldview is actually the first step in changing the world and creating the world that we want to live in. So what would it take to understand our perspective on Ukraine? We know the answer. Now let's get to work. Thank you for listening to another episode of the What Would It Take podcast. If you appreciate this work and want to support me, please take a moment and leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcast. That is the fastest way for new listeners to find this content and for our audience and community to grow. And I also encourage you to take a moment and share this podcast on your social media platforms so that others can listen to and reflect on the same things that you're reflecting on. You can also follow me on social media. I'm on Facebook and Instagram. And if you have questions or topics you want to suggest, feel free to email me at benjaminjtapper at gmail.com. That's Tapper with two Ps. Once again, thank you for listening to this episode. Thank you for holding my vulnerability and for the parts of myself that I offered today and for going with me on this journey. We've got some answers. Now, let's get to work. Mm -hmm.